This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. As Maui burns, Joe Biden asked for another $24 billion out of your pocket and my pocket for Ukraine. For once, it would be nice if those elected to represent Americans, I don't know, represented Americans. The show starts now. The blaze ravaging Maui is already the deadliest wildfire in the U.S. in more than a century. The death toll continues to rise and as of this morning was at 96 with hundreds still missing. Damage across the island is estimated to cost close to $6 billion. Nearly 5,000 people are without shelter, many also without supplies or resources. And while I understand natural disasters happen, Hawaii emergency management records confirm that no warning sirens sounded before the fire engulfed the town. Who knows how many lives could have been saved? This is just wholly unacceptable. And yes, I am aware FEMA is on the ground. I am aware Biden declared a federal disaster declaration and pledged to do whatever is necessary to help. That's great. That's standard. But... When asked about the devastation in Maui, here is what our illustrious leader had to say. Will you come talk about the Hawaii response, Mr. President? Uh, nothing there. No comment. No comment at all. Also, I can't help but think how far the $24 billion Joe just asked for, in addition to the $113 billion we've already sent to Ukraine, more accurately, Zelensky, would go for the people, the Americans in Maui and East Palestine, Ohio, in America, for God's sake. Our government, and that includes neocon rhinos like Lindsey Graham, has hemorrhaged tens of billions to Ukraine and counting, has abandoned billions worth of military equipment in Afghanistan left to be used by the Taliban, our government is also dumping billions of our hard-earned money to take care of aid and abet illegal aliens. You know, at what point do we say enough and mean it? I know the favorite excuse of a phrase that we can walk and chew gum at the same time. Well, look around you. Clearly, our government cannot. I am so sick of America last. I am so sick of watching our own country fall by the wayside as politicians on both sides of the aisle waste our money on other countries. America first used to mean something. Now it's just screen printed on T-shirts at Trump rallies, and that's about it. It doesn't have to be this way, folks. But still ahead, Louisiana Attorney General Jeff Landry has been going to bat for free speech and against big tech plus big government censorship. And he joins me with an update on where it stands and where it's headed. That's next. So by now, you should be aware that Joe Biden and his pals over in big tech do not love free speech. And in fact, they'd really love to kill it. But thanks to my next guest, as well as our friends in House Oversight, we have hard evidence that the Biden administration pressured big tech to censor, reduce, and diminish voices that ran contrary to the White House's preferred COVID narrative. I should know. I was one of them. But about a month ago, a federal judge issued an injunction blocking the Biden regime from contacting and colluding with social media companies to censor and suppress this kind of content. 
But that doesn't mean this issue is fixed. Far from it. Joining me now with the latest from the Fifth Circuit hearing on the matter last week is Louisiana's Attorney General Jeff Landry. Attorney General Landry, it is so great to have you. Well, Tommy, it's great to be with you and all of those that have been, all of those that have been with you and people watching as well, because this, this is an extremely important case. It absolutely is. And I'm not just saying that because I'm part of it, but because I think this has really large implications, not only for the First Amendment and free speech, but just with the way that we conduct, I don't know, maybe the next pandemic, the next national emergency we have, making sure that people can speak freely, making sure that people's opinions and held beliefs are able to be circulated online and a discussion is able to happen, which we know really ran contrary in, in many cases to the Biden administration's preferred narrative on all this. But give me an update because I know that what you guys are working so hard, you made sure that you got that favorable ruling. So it said that big tech couldn't collude with the government anymore. But as I understand it, not only is the Biden administration trying to still continue that behavior, it's still ongoing in that we don't necessarily have a victory here. Where is it at? Yes. And look, talking about how we how we deal with the pandemic, how about how do we deal with the next election, a very important election coming up? But again, yeah, so where we so where we are about a month ago, as you said earlier, a, a federal judge here in Louisiana entered an, an injunction. Now let me just break down in very simple terms what his injunction said. His injunction his injunction was a reinstatement statement of the amendment. It did not say that the federal government was muzzled. It absolutely said that the federal government has the right. The White House can, the press secretary can, Gary can get up and can say, you know what? There are things, there are things on in social media, and people are saying around around the country, we do not believe to be correct, or we believe are incorrect. And they can debate those. They can use and use their platforms to put to put out whatever message they want. The federal judge's injunction just, just says that the federal government cannot muzzle you and me and American citizens out there. They cannot go to the social platforms and say, we do not like what Tom, Tommy is saying. We want you to take down Tucker's YouTube. They can't do, do that. that. The case is about it's about an injunction. The, the government took an appeal. We, we were at the U.S. Circuit in New, in New Orleans last week. Where we heard, where we were a great panel of judges who seem to have a real grip on this issue. This issue, I think, the the injunction will go back in case. And when we talk about what was going on and what you uncovered, along with you know Congressman Jim Jordan and some of the Facebook files that he's released, I mean, not only was it the government pressuring these companies to censor and suppress speech, but just last week, we got more of an indication that the White House was actually going to Facebook and saying, hey, could you possibly monkey with the algorithm so that the voices that we consider authoritative, like the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, are elevated in the algorithm instead of voices like mine and the Daily Wire, for example? I mean, this was beyond just sitting at a lectern and saying, oh, we believe this is misinformation. This was them going and actually asking these companies to not only censor, suppress, and flag people, but hey, can you also change the very mechanism with which people use to get on these platforms and follow people that they want to follow? Can you change that so that people who follow Tommy 
don't really see Tommy anymore and others, including the Daily Wire specifically mentioned. So when you get into the weeds and the, and the legality all of all of this, do you think this is going to head to the Supreme Court? I mean, where is the next step for this and where do you think it's going to eventually end up? Look, I think that this is one of the most important First Amendment cases, certainly this century, maybe maybe the last hundred years. This is going to this is going to basically determine whether the, whether the First Amendment goes us into the virtual world as we move from a, a physical public square to a virtual virtual public square. This is why this case is is important. And yes, I do believe we'll end up at the United States Supreme Court eventually. I will tell you, even the attorney general, the special assistant attorney general, who argued the case for Louisiana before his judges last week, two weeks ago, he was censored. He was deplatformed deep off of YouTube for talking about this case, Tommy. So, yes, that's the, the reach that's been going on. Look, for six years years now, Attorney General, I have been ringing the alarm bells about both the size, the size and, and conduct of the, of these social uh, platforms. But guess what? Now the government is embedded in it as well, and these platforms are taking directions from the government. That's what we found in this case. So even before this goes to the Supreme Court, there's been a lot of talk in the past about Section 230 and treating these big tech social media platforms as publishers instead of just, you know, an, an online marketplace of ideas, which we know that they really are not since there's only certain ideas welcome in the marketplace. But would something like a Section 230 or something like that, a Band-Aid or even the threat of that, would that help in the interim before this goes through all the processes that it has to go through? Would that be something that they could threaten at least the congressional level to start getting us a result, as, as you mentioned, ahead of this very important election in 2024? Well, we've been trying to address Section 230 back when... Uh, President Trump for his election. And of course, of course, the Democrats threatened us 2.30. Then the social media platforms went left instead of instead of right middle. And then the White House goes back. And actually, it's 2.30 that they use to threaten these social platforms with ensuring that they censor people like you, Tommy. Yes, I do believe that Section 2.30 can be addressed. How, however, it's important for me to also say I do not believe my legal opinion that 230 is as broad, broad companies believe it to be. There are certain challenges that are working their way through the, through the courts that are in the breadth of 230. I do believe that they're like a publisher. I mean, when you have the ability to edit and edit and form and censor and who goes up and who comes down, you're acting as a publisher. Right. So what what your case really is about is making sure that the government isn't pressuring these companies. But is there going to be any relief for these companies that just have their own set of community guidelines that the way that they are written and the way that they are applied really affect conservative and independent contrarian voices more so than maybe their preferred voices? Is there anything that can be done to make sure that these social media companies act, you know, at least somewhat fairly when it comes to the content that they're suppressing, the people that they are deplatforming and kicking off. I mean, you mentioned being censored for talking about censorship. That's a very real thing. You can't even be honest about what's happening to you because you could 
risk losing your voice just from discussing that. So it feels like our backs are really against the wall here because even without pressure from Rob Flaherty over in the White House or Joe Biden, it feels like these companies are happy to censor and suppress voices all on their own. Yeah, look, I think it's important, important for us to understand we're basically in like these two different buckets. However, the, the biggest danger currently right now is the bucket under which the government, all right, the federal government is wedded to those social platforms and is instructing those social platforms. That's what our case is about because it's a complete violation of the First Amendment. Then a second bucket is whether or not these Social media platforms should be treated, treated as publishers, should be held liable for when they deform people uh, and when they treat people uh, basically dis disenfranchise them. So I think that the, I think that the, we have to do is is basically buy for, decouple the federal federal government from these social forms, so there's not a First Amendment violation going on, and we have the ability to debate this in a marketplace of ideas. Ideas, and we can look at that second bucket and bucket and determine they're doing it infringes upon us, and they're acting as publisher. And so again, it's important to remember we're dealing with two buckets. We certainly have to empty that first bucket first. Oh, I agree with you wholeheartedly, and I want to thank you for everything that you've done. I mean, if not for you, there's a lot of us, obviously myself included, who have always suspected that we were being censored and suppressed. But when you see it in plain black and white, when you see your name, when you see the communications between the White House digital director and those over at Facebook or at Twitter or at Google or at YouTube, I mean, it's stunning and it's such an important an important mechanism to show the American people of all political ideologies that this marketplace of ideas and free thinking has been hampered, especially in the last couple of years. So Attorney General Landry, I want to thank you so much. Please keep us updated. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing how this progresses. And I'm happy to be a, a helpful any way that I can be. Well, thank you, Tom. And we hope to be back soon. All right. God bless. Still ahead, Bud Light went woke and partnered with a trans influencer and has been in a literal free fall ever since. Heir to the Anheuser-Busch dynasty, Billy Bush says his ancestors will be rolling in their graves if they could see the company now. He joins. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Me next. This month I celebrated my day 365 of womanhood and Bud Light sent me possibly the best gift ever, a can with my face on it. Check out my Instagram story to see how you can enjoy March Madness with Bud Light and maybe win some money too. Love ya! Cheers! There it was, folks, the ad partnership that broke an iconic beer brand. The Bud Light Dylan Mulvaney fiasco is still a living nightmare for Anheuser-Busch. Not only has the Bud Light has not only has Bud Light tanked and been replaced as America's top beer, now the company has been forced to sell eight other brands under its umbrella in a last-ditch effort to cut costs. A Canadian cannabis company will be purchasing eight of their brands, including Shock Top and Highball Energy. This deal is reportedly only worth $85 million, which seems like a really cheap price for eight brands. 
Anheuser-Busch is in deep trouble and unless the company comes out and makes a direct and detailed apology for that transpartnership, the chance of a rebound is highly unlikely. And I hope one day business students will have an entire lesson plan centered around what a horrible marketing strategy that Mulvaney partnership was. But this company is a far cry from what it used to be, from what the Bush family intended for it to be. And my next guest wants to set the record straight. Joining me now is heir to the Anheuser-Busch dynasty and author of Family Reigns, The Extraordinary Rise and Epic Fall of an American Dynasty, Billy Bush. Billy, it's great to have you. Thanks for having me, Tommy. So I have to get your initial reaction when you saw that Dylan Mulvaney ad, because obviously this was back in March. It's been many, many months since that happened. But when you saw it, did it, it bother you as much as it bothered what appears to be a lot of former Bud Light drinkers? Well, after writing my book, Family Reigns, I was much closer to where my family came from, how they accomplished what they accomplished all those years going all the way back to the mid 1800s up to now. With great marketing, they understood they were out there with the people, they were out there with the beer drinkers, they knew their customers very well. And so, um, you know, when InBev bought the company, it was a ship and it was rolling down the ocean at full speed, doing great. And all of a sudden, they come out with this kind of woke, woke culture, uh, political agenda to push down people's throats. And the beer drinker obviously doesn't relate to that kind of advertising. And so they um, they they boycotted it. And I think there's such a clear distinction here, and I think a lot of folks, um, even the folks at TMZ you spoke to, I think that they're missing the point when they get so outraged about the outrage. I think they're missing the point. Bud Light, for many, many years, has had pride cans, has celebrated pride, has done things for Pride Month and things of that nature. And most people didn't have an issue with it. People didn't boycott. You know, there were some people that probably didn't love it so much, but they were entitled to that. It didn't sink a brand. What I think this Dylan Mulvaney partnership really did is the whole my 365 days being a woman, because not only did you offend maybe traditional Christians who aren't really down with that kind of thing, but to me, they just offended women in general because they have somebody who is not a woman being paid to act like a woman and really make fun of everything it is to be a woman wearing like basically a prom gown and pearls talking about Bud Light and March Madness. It really just poked a finger in the eye of everybody that drinks Bud Light. So I think that the outrage over the outrage is misunderstood in a lot of ways. But it, I think it would have been better, you know, maybe just don't dive into politics at all. Just keep it a, a beer brand. Why did InBev decide to go this route? And do you think that they can climb out of it? I think I think going this route, um, they probably thought they were being inclusive. And I think they thought they could bring this community, the transgenders, uh, people together and um, make everybody realize that there's that a big community out there like that. Um, However, I don't think people can relate at this point, especially the Bud Light drinker, the core drinker, who's, you know, your, uh, your everyday guy, your hard worker, your blue collar person who's out there enjoying a Bud Light. To see that uh, message on the can is really hard for most people to understand. I mean, we're not there yet. <laughs> if if uh, we're ever going to get there, I don't know. But, uh, you know, I think it's a difficult message to understand. I think you're right. I think um, Bud Light is always... Uh, advertised to the gay community and that's fine they've targeted that um in a way that that's respectful and and that worked but um to uh to bring in the transgenders at this point um that people don't relate to especially the bud light drinker 
is going to be very, very difficult for InBev to come out of this now and um, get people drinking Bud Light again. I really think it's going to be tough. What did you think when they had that, I believe now, ex-marketing executive talking about trying to get away from what you just described, the, the fratty nature of Bud Light, and basically move away from their core customer base, almost denigrating and demonizing a core customer base? I mean, that might have almost been worse than the original ad. Um, when it comes to marketing and saying moving away from a, from a fratty base, is that InBev in general? Or is this this one person? It doesn't seem like they've cleaned house to get rid of people that think that way, that really just don't like their customers, to be honest. Well, that goes against being inclusive to get away from the, the fratty drinker, right? So that's uh, that's a big mistake. Uh, yeah, I think I think InBev doesn't understand who their core drinker is. I, um, you know, it's a it's a um, Brazilian-based company um, that really doesn't live here in America. My family and family reigns. I talk about the history of my family. One of the things they did, they got out on trucks. They got out on, uh, they got out and met with their customers. They knew who their drinkers were. They were with the bar owners and the restaurant owners and the, and the liquor store owners and talking to these people day in and day out. Even my dad at 89 years old, 90 years old, he was still going to the bars selling Budweiser back in those days in the 80s. And so, um, you know, we we always cared very, very much about the people in America. Uh, what got what made this company great was America, of course. And, um, you know, when you are a foreign company and you rely on these woke um these woke students that are coming out of these woke colleges to do your advertising for you, you're making a big mistake. You need to go out there and understand who your core customer is. And going back to InBev as well, I mean, I actually had an interview and it was an anonymous interview with an employee of Bud Light, Budweiser. And I'm going to play the clip for you, but just to give you a little backstory as well, you know, he said back when it was Anheuser-Busch, he loved working for the company. The benefits were great. The morale was great. You know, there were times where it was, it was difficult as far as sales, but they always picked back up. They were always moving along. They were in the Houston area and things were, were going well. And then he told me after InBev took over, things started to change. And he was telling me that him, he's recently laid off and other employees who were recently laid off and are still working, believe that this was all premeditated. I want to play this clip for you and get your thoughts. It's like the worst timing yet, the best timing if a company were to try to change the way it, it operates um, from a corporate level. So that, and that's just my opinion. And many of us are talking about that. Like, a, like, like they planned it in a way, uh, like a strategic uh, destruction of Bud Light. So what he's telling me is that he thinks that InBev wanted to restructure the company to maybe not provide so much overtime pay, maybe cut some benefits, cut some perks. And they believe that maybe this was sabotage so that they could have an excuse to restructure these things because they said, hey, listen, sales are tanking. We got to get rid of people. We got to take you know, cutbacks here and there. So he feels like this was premeditated. What's your thought on, on his hypothesis? That's a very interesting statement. And I kind of thought about what he said right there before you know, um, InBev is notoriously uh, expense cutters. They look for any way they can cut expenses. And uh, the brand Bud Light is a brand that's uh, 
um, you know, it's a premium price brand, so they're not getting that above premium, that super premium price on that on that beer. Um, they're not making the most money. The margins aren't that great on on a, a premium uh, beer like Bud Light. So it's not too far fetched. But let me tell you, when he talked about um, when you talked about how the company, how the employees at the company used to love to work there, they were so incredibly proud to work there. In the book Family Reigns, I talk about how my my grandfather, August Sr., kept all 2,000 employees employed during Prohibition, 13 years of Prohibition, without having to lay anybody off because he loved his employees and he cared so much about his employees. And that culture is completely gone now. This end of, you know, maybe maybe they are that ruthless that they don't care about anybody except the bottom line. And, you know, again, they're notoriously, they're, they're, they're financial people. They look for, for ways to cut expenses. They count the beans and that's about it. Do you have regret that your, your family and this dynasty sold off this iconic company, this iconic brand and seeing where it is now? Is there some regret there? Is that left a bitter taste in your mouth as far as maybe wanting to go back and do things over? When I learned more about my family and where we came from, you know, I didn't learn about it until more until I was more uh, midlife uh, later on in life, um, because I was so busy living the history with my father working at the distributorships on the farm um, where we grew up, which was open to the public and experiencing life like that. And it's all in the book Family Reigns that um, I, it wasn't until later on in life that I was so interested in seeing how this all was accomplished. And when I learned about my great grandfather, how it got started, the incredible American history, what they gave back to the people of this country because they love this country so much, how they supported the company, the country through the world wars, um, making gun parts and um, and fuselages for planes in World War II and engines for the submarines in World War One. how they shut the company down to do those kinds of things for this country because they love this country so much. I think, yeah, I think whenever you lose an incredible co company like that, you build this dynasty and you lose it and it goes away to a foreign company that doesn't have that same love. It's a tough thing. It really is. And now more than ever, it's playing itself out. And I urge that company in Bev, if they don't want that brand any longer, sell it back to the Bush family, sell it to me. I'll be the first in line to buy that uh, brand back from you and we'll make that brand great again. What's the first thing that you would do if you you know, reacquired the Bud Light brand or, or the Anheuser-Busch brand, some of the brands that fall under that umbrella? What would be the first thing that you would do to right the wrongs with the core customer base and do you think it's possible? You know, I think if if I were able to take it over, I think the first thing I would do is I would change my advertising. I would apologize and let people know that this isn't what uh, the advertising that we've done in the past. Um, we're more about getting people together, bringing people together, talking about quality, loving this country, honoring this country for what made it great. And um, and being very inclusive to everyone and going out there and taking care of my employees, taking care of our customers and building this brand back to being the number one beer that it should be and um, and making it great again. 
Well, I think a lot of Bud Light drinkers out there would love to see that happen because I think it, it hurts a lot of people to have to continue with the boycott, especially seeing the impact that it's having on the employees that through no fault of their own are being impacted by this. So I think there are a lot of Americans out there that hope what you just said comes true, and I'm one of them. So best of luck with that. Congratulations on the book, Family Reigns, The Extraordinary Rise and Epic Fall of an American Dynasty. I think you can make it great again, and I'm holding out hope that that happens one of these days. Thank you so much, Billy, and God bless. Thank you very much, Tommy. Coming up, another high-end store looted in L.A. County, but I'm sure it was for social justice. My final thoughts are next. $100,000 in merchandise is looted from a Nordstrom in L.A. County. And if you're wondering why this crap keeps happening, you must not be familiar with California. It's time for final thoughts. So in case you missed it, law and order is not a thing in California, not in Northern California, not in Central California, and certainly not in Southern California. Instead, California has become a place for the very rich, the very poor, and those who steal from the rich and the poor and call it social justice. What happened this past weekend at the Westfield Topanga Mall is just another example of that. Here you see about 50 looters ransacking a Nordstrom store flash mob style in broad daylight. They were even reportedly toting bear spray to fend off any security guards that may try to intervene in their brazen thievery. This is the second flash mob-style coordinated theft effort in L.A. County in two weeks. A couple weeks ago, a group ransacked a St. Laurent store at the Americana at Brand Mall in Glendale, California, stealing around $300,000 in merchandise before taking off in 20 separate getaway vehicles. Now, the left will tell you they were simply getting their reparations or that they needed these items to feed their families, but funny, Looters never seem to be lifting bread and milk, but always need designer shoes, jewels, and handbags to feed their families. Funny how that works. Why this is all happening and happening often in California is no shocker, no surprise, no Da Vinci Code here, folks. Hell, even rapper 50 Cent knows why looting has become California's new favorite pastime. L.A. has re-upped the no-cash bail policy, which does away with bail for anyone charged with a misdemeanor or non-violent felony, though L.A.'s definition of non-violent is pretty lenient to begin with. There is no, this no-cash bail policy breezed under the radar during COVID when felon-coddling officials deemed it cruel to jail people who stole from or otherwise non-violently terrorize others. That policy expired in July of last year, but wouldn't you know it, an L.A. judge ruled the cash bail system to be unconstitutional and oppressive and reinstated the free-for-all. And that's precisely why none of this is going to end. Not now, not ever. As long as major cities vote for Democrats, this will continue. People have gone feral. They've been conditioned to believe stealing from others is their right and entitlement. The 2020 riot and looting season taught them that. So as much as I'd like to say there's hope for these cities that they can be saved, I don't actually truly believe that. So rather than telling conservatives and decent people to stay and fight the good fight, I'll be honest with you, just leave. Get to a red state or at least a purple one, abandon ship and start over. There is an America that looks like the America you once knew and I suggest you get to it and fast. Those are my final thoughts from Nashville. God bless. Take care.